Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irina Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. And I am Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed on this podcast are our own and not our employers. It's not uncommon when asking someone on a first date to see if they'd like to go for a drink. According to data from the National Institutes of Health, 84% of American adults reported that they have drunk alcohol at some point in their lives, with about two-thirds of adults reporting drinking within the past year. Across European countries, we see similar and higher rates, and while rates are lower in many African and Middle Eastern countries, alcohol is woven into the social fabric in many places throughout the world. With such a high prevalence of alcohol use, it naturally follows that some people will use alcohol in unhealthy ways and will experience hardships and loss because of it. Some recognize it's a problem, other remains in denial about that. Of those who realize that their use of alcohol, or other substances for that matter, is getting in their way of leading their best life, some will reach a point where they're ready to commit to a substance-free, sober life. But does it get lonely for those who are sober in a world where substance use is widespread? What about for single people who do use substances? What considerations should be addressed when they are concerned about the substance use of someone they're dating? And what are points of consideration that should be taken into account when deciding to date someone who's sober? We'll discuss these questions and more with Felicia Hermley, a licensed clinical social worker and sobriety coach. We are excited to have with us today Felicia Hermley. Felicia is a licensed clinical social worker who works as a sober therapist and emotional sobriety coach. She's also the host of the podcast Sobriety Checkpoint, where she addresses emotional health for parents in recovery. She's passionate about sobriety and loves to partner with people who are new in their sobriety journey and those who have been at it a while and have a desire to go deeper in their emotional and spiritual health. Felicia, welcome to Strangers on the Internet. Tell us, what inspired you to specialize in working with people who are on a journey to maintain sobriety? Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So what inspired me? Um, I would actually say that working with people in recovery seems more like a, a calling than a career choice. I have been sober myself for 12 years and when I got sober, I was I was in school and I decided to study drug and alcohol counseling with having no intention to use those studies, <laughs> no intention. And at that time, I was actually really into I mean, I'm still really into my faith, but I was I was I was actually planning on going into parachurch ministry at that time. I tried it and it just didn't feel right for me. So um, I ended up getting a job as a counselor. As time went on, I continued my studies to get a master's degree in social work. And it's funny because all along the way, I feel like there's been times where I have just tried to, to stop I've tried to stop <laughs> working with with substance use. But after I started as a counselor, you know, I really I really loved it. There's definitely ebbs and flows working in treatment. 
you know, there's, there's burnout and then, you know, you get reinvigorated for whatever reason. There was a lot of different things over time that helped reinvigorate, you know, my spirit working, working with drug and alcohol counseling. And when I finished my social work degree, I actually wanted to move towards medical social work or mental health, like kind of mental health only, not substance use. But, you know, as luck would have it, I ended up continuing on working in in substance use, working in methadone. And then when I left the government sector, I was working in nonprofit and government work. I was planning on going into private practice. And once again, I was like, okay, what's my focus going to be? It's not going to be drug and alcohol. And then I started my podcast. What's my focus going to be? It's not going to be drug and alcohol. It turns out everything's drug and alcohol. And uh, when it comes down to it, I really do love recovery. And I think one of the reasons that I, you know, kind of tried to move away from it because I was always just like, you know, just want to try something different. But yeah, like I said, when it comes down to it, this is this is really my heart. And even if I go in a different direction, substance use is always there. So whether somebody is coming to me for anxiety or depression, if they have substance use or they know somebody that has substance use. So it, it's it's so prevalent whether the person that I'm seeing as a client has an issue with drugs and alcohol, like I said, or they have somebody that they love. So the other thing that really inspires me to keep going is because I believe in recovery and I just think that there's a spirit two people in recovery that I just haven't found anywhere else. It sounds like a lot of the times in in your experience, people who are in recovery, they realize that there's something worth fighting for and they are figuring out how to how to partner in that fight, how to find the strength to be victorious in that fight. And, you know, I think it's so important when people are going through things like that to be able to surround themselves with people who are empathic to them, with people who are rooting for them. Because often when we think of substance abuse, we think of the harm that it causes. And we think of people who are hurt by other people's substance abuse. And so this is a case where two things can be true, where you can have hurt people and yourself with your actions, and also you can be a person worthy of redemption. And so while there are some people who are just going to judge the person, well, you got yourself into this situation, that's not ultimately going to be a helpful attitude that helps them or helps them to recover and be in a better place in their lives. So it's so important that when people are ready to take that step, that they find somebody and whether it's a a therapist or a coach, but also the people in their lives who they're surrounding themselves by, who are going to be able to be empathic towards them and support them. Definitely. Community is key, I think. Community is key. So with our podcast, you know, we focus on the dating world. And so... When we think about the idea of community being key and who you're spending your time with being so important to, I mean, especially when we're talking about with people and their sobriety, but also just in general with dating anyone, it's it's important who we spend our limited time with. I'm going to jump in with a question that I think a lot of our listeners would have knowing this is our topic for today. So when we look at the idea of dating and sobriety, I'm wondering, can the two mix? You know, we want to believe that people are deserving of love and connection no matter what they're dealing with in life. But I do wonder if the answer when it comes to this topic is more nuanced than that. Felicia, you are the expert, so please correct me if I'm wrong about this. My 
uh, training in substance abuse and how to treat it is older and more limited than yours. But from what I understand, when somebody initially makes the decision to commit to sobriety, it's recommended that they not pursue new relationships at that time. Is that correct? And if so, why is that? And if not, why is it that that was the prior way of thinking? Sure. You know, in the 12-step world, there's definitely that suggestion to not date for a year in order to focus on your own recovery, focus on the steps, just look inward. Dating can be a distraction to doing the work in the 12-step world. So the focus ends up being more outward rather than inward. And it's interesting though, because if we move away from from the 12-step world. I love the 12-step world. I also love science. And I think that they mix. There's definitely an integration with them. And when it comes to science, there's actually, I think, a good amount of science to back up the suggestion to not date. And, you know, definitely there, there's that there's that distraction. And it's a good distraction because of the fact that it's a great substitute for substance use. And what I mean by that you know, the chemical that the chemical withdrawal that you're experiencing when getting sober can definitely be filled with another person. It can be filled by dating. There was actually a study done at Rutgers University that was led by uh, Dr. Helen Fisher. And that study concluded that, you know, love can be broken down into three categories, lust, attraction, and attachment. And there's different hormones that hormones, neurotransmitters that will be released during these three different phases. And um, I don't know about you, but I'm so excited talking about this. I love it because I just I just love how how these things can be integrated. So, you know, a lot of the I think old school, you know, addiction is a disease and a lot of the old school treatment modalities, I think, can be like supported now. By a lot of science and um and like i said i think that there's a good integration with them so in in the phase of, of attraction so when there's this attraction to somebody else one of the chemicals that one of the neurotransmitters that's released is dopamine and a couple other ones norepinephrine serotonin and what happens when these chemicals are, are released at a very high level logic and rational behavior can sometimes go out the window. So it's it's similar to drinking alcohol, that prefrontal cortex gets shut down, you make bad decisions. Whether somebody is struggling with addiction or not, this can happen to anybody, right? Chemicals can will just shut down this part of the brain. So the dopamine that gets fired off during this attraction phase involves brain pathways. So, so dopamine is really huge with reward, the reward system in the brain. So, and and it's similar to the reward system with, with substance use. So dopamine plays a big role in the brain's reward system. When dopamine's released, we feel good. And high levels of dopamine create this euphoria similar to, to drugs, right? So, I mean, I think a lot of people can relate to that honeymoon stage of dating where you can't think about anything else besides that person. You can't sleep, you can't eat. And those, I guess, side effects are similar to what happens with substances as well. So drugs and alcohol release high levels of dopamine. 
And the same regions of the brain light up during this phase of attraction and when using drugs and alcohol. So, I mean, to me, that's that's pretty fascinating. And I'm going to definitely lead this, connect this back to how does this relate to not dating? Because you almost think, well, if this is a good substitute, then it's probably better. I mean, dating can be a solution for substance use. And um, I'll go into why it could be kind of risky to do that. So the breakup. (laughs) So the breakup, right? So you date and maybe it just doesn't last, right? So I think the, the withdrawal from drugs and alcohol is similar to that withdrawal of a broken heart. You kind of have that broken heart and and there's just this crash that comes. So if the, the relationship doesn't work out, you get the broken heart. And to fix a broken heart, you can use to increase that dopamine. So sometimes there can be this cycle of dating and use that kind of goes hand in hand, kind of this back and forth of, you know, you're dating somebody and things are good, you're not using, but then you break up, you go back to substances because it fills in the chemicals that are now gone. So, you know, that's kind of like the hard science behind it that I mean, to me, I just think that's really cool. So that's me nerding out. I love it. <laughs> well, so. and it's such a, a practical understanding of the issue. Because yeah, like, like, as you were explaining it, I definitely think people be like, Yeah, you're right. That sounds like a good fill in until you remember that most people you meet, you're probably not going to go on to have a happy, successful, easy relationship with there's a lot of misses in dating before you have, you know, a real hit, a win. And so right. so actually the likelihood of having to deal with the distress, the upsetting stuff, the breakups are pretty high. And so it sounds like until you are ready and have other coping skills, tools in your tool belt to deal with the loss of something like that, it would be tempting to then just go back to substances because they're all easily accessible. You're going to feel the effects of them more quickly than it would take you to get back on the apps, make another match and and fall back into that honeymoon period. So I think that makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense. If I could, I was just going to throw something in and then maybe ask a related question. But, you know, because I was thinking while you were saying that, that, well, in a way you're no worse off, right? Because like you came, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit here. So if, if, if I'm coming off of the, you know, substance use, like you would have had to deal with all this stuff and instead you went on to date, maybe one person, maybe multiple people, then in a way, I mean, there are probably other ways in which your body at least has time to not, not be as used to the alcohol anymore or the other substances anymore. Now, now the one thing that where I'm going to immediately argue back against myself, because that's part of what we law professors do, is the temptation seems incredibly high to go for the wrong person, to just keep filling in that gap. And that seems very dangerous, right? But the, the sort of like the, the, uh, the addiction part, it seems like is, I don't know, as bad or, or not, maybe even not as bad if dealt with later. So am I missing something here or misinterpreting something? Again, with this huge caveat that you'd end up with like lots and lots of wrong people and that could be really bad too. But just want to throw that your way and see what you think. And I have a guess I want to add in to see, I'm testing my own knowledge here with you too, Felicia, but um, is it, does it have something to do with the fact of both physical, like chemical dependence, but also psychological dependence, like how maybe filling in the need meets the the physical dependence. And, and if you 
that buys you time to, I guess, bring down some of the, my body is dependent on these drugs, but it doesn't actually correct the psychological dependence component of things. I don't know. What do you think? If I'm understanding the original question correctly, I think there's two schools and one is abstinence and the other is harm reduction. So, and that actually just came up as you were asking the question. I was thinking, well, you know, dating to fill in that chemical imbalance is better than using substances, right? Like if you fill in dating and, you know, you're staying off of alcohol or even heroin, I mean, it's harm reduction. So I, being in recovery, you know, personally, my life is abstinence-based, but being a treatment provider for so many years, I have learned a lot about harm reduction. When I first got into substance use counseling, I had a hard time with harm reduction. I was definitely in, you know, the mindset of abstinence. That's the only way. It's the only, you know, way people, 12 step recovery is, is it. And over the years, I've just realized there's just so many ways for so many different people. So in some ways, filling in that gap with dating could be helpful and in other ways, it could sort of just delay the recovery process. And then it also depends on what do you what do you call recovery, right? So personally, and with for a lot of people that I that are in my community, in my life, and even clients, it's more than just not using or drinking. It's about going inward and deepening everything, you know, body, mind, and spirit. But for for the next person who the the goal is just don't use, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't judge that. I think that that's just somebody's journey. I don't know if that makes sense or if it sort of kind of fills oh, yeah. in, answers that question. So I think it very much does um, that there's right that there's a trade off maybe even between the sort of the stopping usage as quickly as possible, right, and versus the hey, what is it about you that keeps you hooked, whether it's hooked to the substances or hooked to dating or hooked to, and, and that thing deep down is probably going to keep making you unhappy, even if you manage to stay in the relationship and not use substances, presumably. Mm -hmm. But hey, you two are the psych experts. So I'm <laughs> just throwing out <laughs> the theory out there. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And you know what you were saying about how a lot of the times the solution to overcoming substance abuse is not only to be sober or like from the harm reduction model to reduce substance use or whatever it might be, but like you said, to go deeper as far as body, mind, and spirit, because I think sometimes people have a hard time making that connection. What does that have to do with it? But I think what it has to do with it is if you think about like your life, the, the things you spend your time thinking about or engaging in as like a pie chart, like what percentage of your time do you spend thinking about things that are pleasurable? You know, for people without a substance abuse or other addiction, I was going to say a substance abuse problem, but honestly, any kind of addiction for people without an addiction. Things that are pleasurable represent like a small percentage of what they think about, but they're also able to divide their time into, okay, like what are my work responsibilities? What kind of things do I need to be doing for my family? Things like that. But when you're dealing with any kind of addiction, whether it be to a substance or to like to dating relationships, things like that, you spend, I mean, a lot of times upwards of like 
85, 90% of the time you're thinking about things or thinking about things related to that. So the rest of your life suffers, you know, body, mind, and spirit, all the rest of the things that make you a person and that make for a meaningful, holistic life go to the wayside. And so whatever it is that you're addicted to, the solution to the addiction in large part is broadening your worldview so that it's not so laser focused on this one thing. So you're not essentially putting all your eggs for happiness in one basket. Would you say that's that's right? Yeah, I would I would say so. I think, yeah, I mean, I, one of the things that was was coming up as far as like, you know, going deeper is the fact that, you know, I see oftentimes substance use is, is sort of just on the surface. The addiction, whether it's substances or anything else, there's a deeper uh, rooted problem. So in in the 12-step world, they talk about the substance just being a symptom of the problem. And the problem actually isn't the substance, it's something else. When you mentioned being addicted to dating, you know, that that's I think this cycle of kind of getting into getting into into a, a relationship, being on that honeymoon phase because the dopamine's just firing off like crazy. And, you know, that other person, they're just perfect. You know, nothing is, you know, everything about them that's quirky is is everything that you love right in the beginning. And once that starts to fizzle out, that's where it's it's kind of like the, the decision. It's kind of like decision time, right? Can you continue in this relationship through, you know, making a decision to – to carry on when things aren't as exciting as they were in the beginning. And th- the other thing that I was thinking about when you said relationship addiction has to do with there's this parallel I think with substance use and getting into recovery and in in the 12 step world there's this saying living life on life's terms and it took a while for me to sort of understand that. What does this mean living life on life's terms? And when I was about 3 years sober, so honeymoon stage I was definitely in the honeymoon stage first two years of my recovery. And they there's this other term called the pink cloud, which I think is pretty comparable to the honeymoon stage. And around three years of sobriety, it just felt like there was this crash and life felt boring. So I think there's this parallel once again with this boring phase, you know, and a relationship kind of getting like, oh man, this is you again? You're still here, right? <laughs> and and I think that, you know, at that point, you know, for me at three years, it's like, okay, well, what do I do now? Because there's this realization that you just can't be on that cloud all the time. You can't be in that honeymoon stage all the time. And yeah, I, I, uh, I also apologize if I am not on track with what you were saying, but that's kind of what was coming up as you were, as you were, you know, talking so and it's actually pretty cool kind of like doing this podcast with you and and just that thought I honestly actually haven't even thought about that thought of the of that parallel but it's just so so I mean these conversations are just really cool to (laughs) you know figure things out even in the moment so we think so too yeah novelty wears off for anything right like that's why some people love shopping whether they're actually addicted to it or they just enjoy it right like anything after a while quote unquote gets old and i think it actually comes back in part to what michelle was saying about not putting all your eggs in one basket right because if you keep 
you can keep life exciting, right? You can keep trying new things and having new hobbies and having new friends. And you don't have to always do the same old, same old, but some aspects, if you also want some level of stability, like you're going to have to accept some level of boredom and frustration. And I think, I don't know. I also think that there is more difficulty maybe for some populations than others. So for example, if you have ADHD, you might be part of a subgroup that is more dopamine seeking, right? And for whom it's going to be harder to tolerate boredom, whether that's giving up on substances, whether that's giving up on certain kind of romantic attachments, even temporarily. So do you have any like special advice for for people who, you know, maybe have a like you were, what you were just describing, maybe having like an even harder time tolerating that kind of boredom. I mean, do they have to read just one more Cosmo article about how to spice up your sex life? Or is there more advice here in terms of like, as part of, I guess, deepening that relationship with yourself that you were describing? Yeah, I think there was, there's two things that are coming up here. And one is, you know, so I think it's about balance. It's about balance here. And I think there's a mixture of figuring out how to spice things up just in life in general, whatever it is, whether it's dating or anything else, as well as acceptance of boredom, of things staying the same. And one of the things that's difficult, you know, whether it's certain populations, people with ADHD or kind of people from our from Western society, right? I mean, I think it's so ingrained in our culture. So people in... Most people, I think, right? We just the, the consumerism, the the marketing, the you know, when you said novelty wears off, I was just thinking about being a little kid and begging for this toy, getting it, and then it gets dusty, right? I've got two little kids and you know, toys are great for a week and then they go on the shelf, right? So the advice that I would, you know, give somebody who, you know, maybe has ADHD or just has a little bit more trouble with kind of staying still is normalizing that difficulty. I think even especially for for certain diagnoses, people who have certain diagnoses, there's this sort of pathologizing of of something that is normal. Right? I think it, it's 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 normalizing their experience, normalizing the difficulty that they're having, because maybe it's a little bit more difficult than other people, but most people have the difficulty. I think most people have that difficulty staying still. And then encouraging this process of, of rest. I don't, think, I don't think we rest enough in general. And the importance of kind of just having space. So like I said, there's this balance. Yes, I can encourage doing things, but I also need to encourage the importance of like, don't just don't just fill up your time. Like you need that space. That space is necessary for recovery. And one of the reasons has to do with feelings, right? So substance use is definitely like just a mask for feelings, right? People who who use, one of the reasons is because we don't want to feel, you know, but but when we numb one feeling, we just we numb them all. Right? You can't just selectively numb out, you know, anger or boredom. It numbs them all out. So, yeah, I mean, I think once again, just just balance of of rest and and spicing things up is just 
so important. So let's say once somebody does get to the point where they feel like they've taken the time, the space for themselves, they've gotten to a good place. And now if they are a single person, now they've decided they want to reintegrate dating or, you know, possibly hopefully one day a relationship back into their lives. This can be a tough process, I would imagine, for somebody who is committed to their sobriety, since so many social activities do involve alcohol. So I would imagine that people who are sober would worry that their sobriety is a liability for dating. Uh, because so much of dating is, hey, like as we had mentioned earlier, let's go out for a drink, something like that. In your work with clients, how true is it that sobriety does make it harder to date? And what would you say to help somebody prepare for that possible obstacle? That's an interesting question because over, I mean, I've been I've been working in substance use for 10 years and that's that doesn't seem like it's come to the surface as a liability. I, I feel like I haven't seen that. And it makes me question like, oh, have I have I not looked? Right. <laughs> so that that question makes me wonder, okay, have I not looked how mu how much of a liability people think that this is? But a few things are coming up when I when I think about kind of getting into to dating, whether or not it's a liability. Maybe one of the reasons I haven't seen it as a liability is because a lot of the people who I've worked with create a new circle. There's a new circle of of community of people who are also sober. So I think maybe that's the reason why I haven't seen it as much of a concern of it being a liability. And, you know, I also understand that that's not everybody's journey to get an entire group of friends who are sober, right? Like that's that's also a, um, that, that could be something to, to overcome there to, to figure out, okay, how do I enter the dating world if I am not going to get a new new circle of of people who are sober. And I mean, I think that that's I think that that's okay and for for people who are struggling with that, I think that what's coming up is is that there's this worry that people are maybe going to notice. The people are going to notice that they don't drink. And the only people who notice when somebody's not drinking are people who potentially have a substance use problem as well. <laughs> So, so if you're surrounding yourself with people who are normal drinkers, you know, or drink drink at a at a normal rate, people who drink at a normal rate don't notice when somebody's not drinking. And I think that that's what I would sort of tell somebody as far as like, okay, well, you know, don't don't worry about this too much because people aren't going to notice. They're not going to they're not going to wonder why you're not drinking. And even if they do offer you one and you say no, thank you, most people aren't going to be pushy about it. And if they are pushy, right? So, I mean, I, I, I guess from my own personal experience, right, is that we're pushy when we've, I mean, I was pushy when I had a problem. And, <laughs> you know, so so I think only the, all the only people who are like, come on, come on, come on, are, are the ones that, you know, maybe that's a good sign. Maybe that's a red flag for you. Maybe that's not the right person right? You know, and, and move on to, to the next. So, right, you know, truly, because something we've talked about before on this show is the idea of like, these days, a lot of people when they're dating are meeting through the apps rather than organically or like through friends or things like that. Like if you're meeting through friends, you might know 
that this person doesn't drink already or something like that. But if you're meeting on the apps, you know, it might be common for somebody to say, hey, would you like to go out for a drink? And then it's so strange because in real life, you usually aren't like, wow, this is my first communication with you. And I'm going to tell you, no, I'd not like to go for a drink. But I think what you said is such a great point that, but sometimes it's better to just find out where somebody lands with something like that. So you don't invest your time or energy in somebody who's not going to be a match for you. So if you can find out right off the bat, oh, like if we don't go out for a drink, you don't want to go out with me. Like that's probably better that you that you know that early on or if they take issue with the fact that, come on, have a drink. I can appreciate what you said there. I think that's got to be reassuring to people to realize, you know what, it sucks when that happens. But honestly, it's for the best that you find it out. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I, yeah. And, it, you know, I know that as far as the dating apps go, I'm also thinking back to my time working in substance use. And I would actually say most of the time in these 10 years, I've actually worked with people who are kind of a maybe a little bit older population who aren't on the apps as much. Now, you know, as I'm getting a little bit older and people are getting younger. (laughs) People are younger. I know that that's the norm, right? So, um, and when I think about that question, right? Oh, let's go for a drink. I know sometimes maybe the worry is even being in that environment, right? So, So if there is that concern of being in that environment, maybe on the app, let them know that you don't drink, I know that can also be a vulnerable process to say um, because that might not be something that you want to share with somebody. So, but it, it's an option. It's an option to 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 say, oh, well, let's get coffee instead, right? That That's also something that you can say. If somebody says, oh, let's get a drink, I mean, you can suggest going out for coffee. So, which I've also heard, I don't know how true this is, but I'm approaching 40 and I guess that that's like, a millennials, millennial state, millennials, what they do, what, what we do is coffee. Somebody was telling me this, that um, I guess like <laughs> the next generation doesn't do coffee. It's not cool. I don't know how true that is, <laughs> but huh? Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. I'm like, well, what do you mean coffee is not cool anymore? I don't know. <laughs> it's yeah. interesting. I just wanted to throw in there that um, as of the last couple of years, um, Bumble, for example, has a drinking badge that you can use where you can select sober, never, or rarely. So you can like kind of calibrate and you can decide if, if you want to use the word sober because the word, as we're seeing, is, is kind of loaded in and of itself. So, you know, I, I think there's a there's a choice there. It's definitely... I, I think it would depend on the setting, whether it would be surprising that someone doesn't drink. So yes, what you're saying about trying to maybe avoid that setting or, or something like if you're going to a bar that doesn't even really have any food, like then someone is much more likely to notice than if you went for pizza, right? And you didn't have a drink with it. So so there are some so there are definitely some choices involved there, but I just thought it was interesting that the apps are sort of at least some of them are becoming maybe more aware of of this issue. So what about people who are kind of on the other side of the equation? Like what advice would you give to someone who maybe does engage in social drinking but starts dating someone and realizes that person is sober? Like what's what's kind of the best way to make that work, right? For for both parties. 
and uh, you know make sure that they everyone has fun and you know is sort of gets to be themselves whatever that that means but in, in a positive way so to the person who is dating somebody who's sober I mean I think the advice that I would give is maybe finding out more about the, their story because I mean I think like I said there's so many paths to sobriety and what you said about that term sober on that app that how, how loaded it is right there there's there's sober you could also say I don't drink you can say um what was the other one that I was thinking of alcohol free right so so there's these different terms that I think mean different things but and 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 there's so many different paths there's so many different paths that I think that that's just a really difficult question to answer as far as like okay if if you're dating somebody you know you find out that they're that they're sober i think there's more information that needs to be received more more information you know and i think that that's something that that you learn over time maybe the advice i would say is don't don't make assumptions don't make assumptions about what that means and giving somebody the dignity to tell their story when they want to or if they want to. So, you know, I know I said get more information. On the flip side, don't be pushy <laughs> with trying to get that information, right? You know, give them that that dignity because sobriety could be a very, very vulnerable process for somebody. Uh, addiction, disclosing that all the shame and stigma that goes along with it in our culture, even though we've made some strides, it's still there. So yeah, giving somebody the space, the the respect, the dignity, and allowing them to tell their story when they're ready without making assumptions of what their sobriety means. And talking about those things like the space, the dignity, what if a relapse happens? What would somebody who's dating somebody who relapsed need to know in order to best support and understand what that person's going through for the person that they've been seeing who relapses. The first thing that comes up is that most likely it's not about them. So to not take it personal, I know that's a lot easier to say than to actually be in that situation. You know, it's not about you. You also can't control them. And I think it's also, it's important to, to keep focus on yourself rather than them trying to control them because that's actually the norm with addiction you know that that dynamic of you know somebody that that relapses or somebody that's active in their addiction you know the dynamic is trying to to control that that's kind of the norm so to do the opposite of that i know is so hard it's way easier for me to say this than to actually be in it and Ask them what they need instead of trying to decide for them what you think that they need. You know, if they want support around treatment and you're able to help with that, you know, I think that that's a good thing. I mean, I think I think that's a good thing to help if, if they express that they need the support. But it's important to not just do that because you think that's what's best for them. Because once again, that goes back to giving somebody the dignity to make their own decisions. And... I think that this is a really interesting question because I had a guest on my podcast this week 
yesterday's episode, who is a psychologist. She's also in recovery from codependency and addiction. Her book is called Co-Crazy. And I I love the book. <laughs> Would it be okay to just read something that I think really relates to, to this question? So in this section, she's talking about working with a mentor of hers that said something that she that just absolutely horrified her. So there was somebody that would come in to discuss her husband's addiction and confront his denial. She would jump in with a bunch of rationalizations and excuses for his behavior. Their marriage was okay. He just needed to stop drinking. At one point in the session, my mentor got so frustrated that he said, you know, you're killing him. I was horrified. I thought, what does he mean? She's killing him. It's not her fault. He's the one drinking. 25 years later, I know what he meant. When we come face to face with the hard truth, they were both killing themselves. So the second thing to be said is that no matter if you are an addict or co-crazy, be kind, gentle, and tender with yourself. And remember that you have a warrior inside of you. Begin the journey to liberation and freedom by staying in your lane, hula hoop, or whatever image helps you stay focused on yourself. Begin to notice how you feel after you take a small step. When I started speaking up for what I needed or set a boundary, I felt a surge of energy. It is as if my true self was returning to my body. I know that sounds nuts, but each small step we take helps us to get ourselves back. We are getting back that precious person we have been giving away to others forever. So I feel like she speaks so much to this, what happens when you relapse or what happens when the person that you're dating relapses because she tells her story about being in recovery and being married to somebody who who relapsed. And that's in the book. The book is great. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, that's where I got, you know, stay in your lane, stay focused on yourself. And, you know, that's just, that's really, really important and controversial. I, I know. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that we haven't explored yet today is we've talked about what happens when you know, you're dating somebody who might um, have a history of uh, substance use problems, but what are some warning signs that someone you're dating may be dealing with a substance use problem that they haven't mentioned to you? Maybe maybe they themselves don't think their use is problematic. Like at what point do you realize, no, there's there is an issue here that needs to be addressed? Does does their drinking make you feel uncomfortable? I think that that's a question to to ask yourself. You know, does their drinking embarrass you? Do they say that they don't remember big pieces of the night before, right? You remember the whole thing and, you know, they're saying that, you know, X, Y, Z didn't happen. Do you notice that they're missing work or whatever commitments that that they said that they're going to be at? I mean, I think that these are a few kind of big questions that could be red flags and and to trust your gut about it. Because I think it's really, really normal to think that the person maybe has a problem. Denial kicks in for both parties. So that's why I started off with 
Does their drinking make you feel uncomfortable? And I think that that's a piece to really, really hone in on and to not ignore, you know, but then what do you do with that, right? So, you know, maybe they don't want to acknowledge acknowledge that they have a problem, right? So you have this feeling, you have this spidey sense. And, you know, once again, you can't control them. You can't make them change their behavior. You can only control your own behavior, right? You can bring it up. And that's kind of the extent of it. And then the next decision is, are you okay with this behavior continuing, being in a relationship with somebody that continues on like this? So once again, I know this is bold and straightforward, right? You can either accept the behavior or leave. So, I mean, I know that that's not gentle, but I mean, I think that's the the reality of it. And, and, and I know it's not that easy. A lot of things that I've said, super just straightforward. And I know it's a process, but I mean, that's a big, that's a big one. That's a big one. Except, except the behavior, that's them. What you see is what you get. This is it right here. I think that's so important is the idea of what they're showing you is more instructive than what they are telling you. And so you have to be able to to do as you said and to say, okay, maybe what they're telling me is what I want to hear. But if what they're showing me is making me uncomfortable or isn't consistent with what I want in a relationship or in a lifestyle, that's, that's what I have to pay attention to. And it's not saying in deciding, okay, I don't want to continue down this path then. You know, I think it's hard for people to be like, well, I don't want to upset this person or make things worse for them or whatever. But honestly, it's part of the process, right? That we have to deal in authenticity rather than trying to sugarcoat things or hang on to hope that by you being there, the person's going to get better. They have to deal with actual consequences for the choices that they're making in order to, if they do want to get to a point where they're like, you know what, I can see this is causing a problem in my life. They're not going to get there as quickly or at all if somebody is just covering up for them or saying, okay, well, I'll put up with this, even though I'm very unhappy putting up with this. So I really think that's an important point that that's hard to accept when you have feelings for somebody, care about them, but what they're doing, what their actions are, are not consistent with with what you want in a relationship. You do have to make the choice that's right for you. And ultimately, in the end, it's going to be the choice that's right for that other person too, because maybe it will be part of a series of consequences that may lead that person to ultimately making a different choice for themselves. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So Felicia, you have shared so much helpful information with us today and we really appreciate it. We can either wrap up here or if there's anything else that, you know, knowing that you were going to be a guest on the podcast, if there's anything you wanted to make sure that we talked about um, or a note you would like to end on, we'll we'll leave that to you. Is there any any final thoughts you would like to share with our listeners? I think I kind of want to reiterate a little bit about what you just said. The importance of the importance of letting people go through their own process, right? So sometimes it seems like sometimes it seems like, oh, I can't make this decision. I'm going to hurt their feelings, you know, or thinking that their next decision, if you if you leave, is your responsibility. And I think what I want would want to leave with, I mean, could, I I feel like feel like an entire other episode could be done on codependency, right? Because I think that this is kind of this is kind of the the crux of it there is 
is that difficulty of leaving and whether you're dealing with somebody with addiction or not. I mean, I think codependency can be can be present. So that allowing somebody to go through hard things doesn't make you a bad person. And that struggle is so important for growth. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Felicia, for all these words of wisdom. Uh, it's been a it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com. There's no the in there. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, or Mastodon, where we are on the Fostodon server with two S's. And we are also on threads. We also appreciate support to defray our costs to run the podcast. You can help us out at swipestrangers on coffee.com, which is ko-fi.com. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Farini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kujukul for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye.